You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Hello, everybody, and welcome yet to another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. My name is Dr. Cole, myself and Jay Fitz started this podcast to go over high yield orthopedic surgery topics. And this topic is a little bit different today. And we have a very special guest here today. Uh, let me tell you more about our guest who will be Dr. Bonnie Simpson Mason. She did she completed her med school where Jay and I both completed our med school at Morehouse School of Medicine. She did her uh, she did her residency at Howard in orthopedic surgery. She is the founder and CEO of beyondtheexamroom.com, and you guys can go there and check it out. We'll probably talk a little bit about it today. She is the founder and executive director of Nth Dimensions, which both Jay and I were a part of and has played a significant role in us getting into orthopedic surgery. Um, she's helped hundreds of students with this program. You know, a little bit more about Nth Dimensions. It is a nonprofit organization aiming at increasing diversity in medicine, decreasing gender and health disparities, and promoting professional development of aspiring physicians in orthopedic surgery, and now other specialties as well. Um, mentor to myself, mentor to hundreds of others. Again, I don't, I don't know if I would be here without Dr. Mason as well, or, or Jay Fitz, or we would have, it would have been a much harder <laughs> and, and a higher uphill um, battle to climb to get here. She is also the recipient of the 2015 AOS Diversity Award for which both J.I. and I were there to witness in person. Um, she is a nationally known speaker and is a published author as well. Um, she authors the book Power Moves, The Doctor's Ultimate Guide to Contracts and Negotiations, which I just finished not too long ago. It's a great book and we will go uh, a little bit into that today, but our topic for the day is we're talking a little bit about contracts and negotiations. Uh, so Dr. Bonnie Simpson Mason, welcome to the Nailed It Ortho podcast. Well, thank you for having me, Dr. Cole. Um, just completely thrilled about uh, the work you're doing with Dr. Fitz and um, impressed with this podcast and honored to be a guest. So thank you so much for having me. Yes, yes. No, we are. With, I, this is a long time coming, really. We, should, we we're glad to finally get you get you on the podcast. So uh, we are humble that you have decided to press us with your presence on the podcast. So again, uh, welcome, welcome, welcome. And kind of what I'd like to do is just give the people just a little bit of a background of where you are and where you're from, and then we can kind of transition to some of the things you've done and talk a little bit about business and contracts and things of that sort. So, um, you know, kind of starting off, where you're from, where, what was your growing up? What was that like for you? Just, just a little bit of background, introspect into your life. Absolutely. Well, I'm a Southern, Southern Belle. Uh, I grew up in, uh, matter of fact, specifically East Point, Georgia, just yeah. down the street from uh, Morehouse School of Medicine. Um, have uh, my parents divorced early. And uh, I watched my mom, who was um, a construction engineer at the time. So this was in the Deep South, post-civil rights Atlanta, with her getting up as um, a college-educated, you know, certified engineer going into the field as the only woman hmm. in that, um, you know, in any of her work sites. And so actually just a couple of years ago on Mother's Day, I asked her, uh, how many other female engineers there were on the construction sites and she couldn't think of any I said mom so that means you were the first yeah and she wow she she paused she said I've never thought about that that was just a couple of years ago so this was in the 70s when she was pioneering even then and um, this was after she had graduated from Howard where she had met my dad who was her physics tutor. So he was over in physics getting his master's and she was in architecture and engineering getting her degree. And they met there at Howard, um, got married, had my sister and I um, had moved to Atlanta uh, and subsequently um, started co-parenting before co-parenting was a thing. Yeah. So we managed that, you know, back in the seventies when, you know, 
there was no name for it. There were no books and that type of thing. Um, and the, the thing I love about my parents um, and their, uh, the way they brought us up despite being divorced um, is that we had maximum support, mm. maximum. They were always present. They agreed to co-parent in a way that most of our friends didn't know they were divorced. Um, even to this day, they this all day. Lived, they both live in East Point, two minutes from each other. Um, my sister is there as well. So they look out for each other. So they just, you know, they friended each other and said, we can't be married, but they friended each other, thereby yeah. giving my sister and I maximum support from a familial perspective, academic, just athletic perspective. They were always there. I recognize, um, Doc, that that was one of the key components that I needed in order to be successful moving forward. And so I subsequently, um, with that point of reflection, um, made it a point to seek out institutions, programs, and environments where people would be successful. I mean, supportive. Yeah. That would promote my success, right? So when I, you know, looked at colleges, well, I had maximum support there. I got a full scholarship. So did my sister. We both went to Howard. So then we were the next generation of Howardites. But there was, you know, built-in support there. Um, When I thought about medical school, I was going back home, was going to have support there. But that's what I needed, right? That was one of the key components I identified that I needed to be successful. And even when it came to identifying an orthopedic surgery residency program, at the time I was applying, um, Howard had graduated graduated more women in orthopedics than almost any other program in the country. And that was back in the day. I was like, that program knows the value of having women in the program and supporting them through successful residency matriculation. I wanted to go to Howard and I was able to meet um, Dr. Claudia Thomas, who's still my mentor to this day. She's the first first black female to be board certified in orthopedics in the country. That wasn't until 1980 that she became board certified. So it wasn't too long ago, but Mm. I met her when I was in medical school and um, we talked about my options for applying, which were few because I was um, a woman, a black woman who went to a historically black medical school. We went to Morehouse, you and I, and that just was unheard of. There had only been one woman before me, uh, Janet Lewis, who had matched in orthopedics prior to me uh, as a Morehouse grad. And um, I was just told innumerable times that I would never match. But knowing Dr. Thomas and she um, mentored me through the process, introduced me to Dr. Grant, who was the chair of orthopedics at the time. And knowing that they had graduated more women than any other program, I just honed in on that on that program, made sure I did my sub-I there, made sure I got to know the um, residents, um, went to the NMA meeting the summer before I applied and met, you know, everybody from Howard that was there and let them know I was coming to do a a rotation, uh, made those connections and showed up. And I, I, I probably, I could not have worked any harder on that sub-I rotation, got there early, stayed late, asked every attending if they, were um, doing any research, could I do a um, lit review for them and pull the articles? And this was when we had to go to the library and copy, uh, copy the articles. Like on the real phone. time. Like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> now this is the computer, but before you actually had to put in work. No, you had to go to the library, go into the stacks, pull the books, go to the copier, get a copy card, pay mm. for it and copy it page by page, staple them together. Man. Right. And then take them to the, to the, it's a <laughs> to real the commitment. <laughs> so yeah. Dr. Grant, Dr. Grant said, um, well, sure, sure. Yes. I'm doing a talk next, next month on spondylolisthesis. Um, so yes, pull me some articles on that. I didn't know what spondylolisthesis was. <laughs> yep. And he's, and I said, well, when do you need the articles? He said, by next week. Mm. Um, he told me he needed the articles, let's say on a Wednesday. Thursday morning, I showed up with 16 articles in a Ooh, phone wow. the next day. And he's looking wow. through them. He was like, I told you I needed these next week. I said, thought, thought you might be able to use them earlier. Mm. He started looking through the articles. Initiative. Like, I needed that one. 
let's flip through another. I needed this one too. I didn't really know, but I just pulled everything I could pull. Yeah. Thank you. And there was no like, oh my gosh, no lauding of the effort, but I'm sure he noted it, right? Of course. Yeah, absolutely. And um, like I said, I was always there, you know, staying late, getting there early. Um, I even volunteered to present an article in Journal Club as a fourth year student. And journal club journal yeah, among club. the residents yeah that's that's a big thing residents don't even want to present articles in exactly clubs. <laughs> exactly and here i was i was like well all they can do is verbally murder me so let's go for yeah. it so i went for it and um, i don't think i got the title out of my mouth before they came for it, my judge yeah they came for it <laughs> they're waiting for you to go yep but it was the initiative again once again and by the end of the rotation um, Dr. Grant, I don't remember saying this to him, but he said, I came into his office, a fourth year student, and I said, you know, you really need me in this program. I can bring mm. a lot to the program. I certainly can benefit from being here. I think this would be a really, really good partnership. Wow. The hubris. Okay. Just, just bold. Hubris. Yeah. <laughs> but I, that was my shot, doc. I, I needed to be at that program. Like I knew, I felt it was a good fit. I didn't have, I had only had two other interviews. So I, I didn't have a bunch of choices. I mean, you did what you had to do. You took initiative. Uh, you showed up early, like you said, uh, you know, presented, presented um, at, 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 at journal club, you know, I think all those, all those things people, people notice, they just, they may not say it just like you said, you said, okay, or thanks, you know, but just like you said, I'm sure everybody was taking mental note. And, and that you had this initiative, that you're bold, and that you're very uh, helpful. And I think that's a, it kind of seemed like kind of, kind of go getter. You're going after what you want, and that's exactly what you did. And, and, and you got there, and you know, you matched there and, um, and, and made it happen and was successful in that, you know. Can I tell you one other thing that just, you, you just jogged my memory on? Yeah. This is relevant to the situation that many of us find ourselves in as students trying to match the competition. So also rotating with me on the very same month was another woman student. She was the cousin of one of the residents and of one of the attendings. Oh, so off the rip, you're like, man, what chance? Like uh, uh, the normal thought for a lot of people, man, what chance do I have? They have all the connections. Like this is what I have to compete against. Like, oh man, this is going to be like, what, what, what chance do I have? That's, that's, that would be my first thought, you know, off the rip, you know, you can't think like that, but that would be my initial thought. Like they have a spot secured, of course. Absolutely. And of course it was then verbalized to me. Well, you know, we won't take two women in one year. That could have been from a resident or or whatever, you know, talking trash, but they were like, so, I mean, so why, why would you even try? Mm. Once again, I made the conscious decision. This is the only shot I have of being someplace that I know I'll be successful. So I'm going to give it all I have regardless, regardless. So match day, open up my envelope. I match at Howard. I'm like, whoo, amen. Of course. Thank, thank you. <laughs> and I called, I had befriended the other woman resident at this point, uh, student at this point. So I give her a call and I said, well, what happened? Because I know you were the shoe in what happened? She said, oh, I decided to, ch- to change and match in dermatology. Oh, wow. <laughs> See, so you never even, you know, it could have, things are going to fall into place the way they wanted it, they, the way that they're, they're meant to be, you know, like just in that situation, you could have counted yourself out. And then next thing you know, boom, that she didn't even apply. She didn't even apply. And can you imagine how much I would have kicked myself had I thrown in the towel based on appearances, the appearance yeah. of, you know, doubt, limitation, against the odds. No, you got to go for it. You you show up and be your best self. Do what you know you're supposed to do. And like you said, things will happen the way they're supposed to. But you yeah. always, just always, you know, I tell you guys, we just have to be excellence personified. Do that. Do you. People yeah. will notice that. Yeah, I remember you telling us that one at Morehouse, you know, when you came and spoke to us uh, as a class and then 
again later on we're actually doing nth dimensions and you know we all met up in dc this is back when we were meeting in person still uh you know we all had met up in dc to do our you know kind of the pre the pre uh before the summer program started and everybody goes to their individual sites and uh well i don't want to get too well let, let's let me backtrack a little bit well what made you uh, can you kind of tell me the story about why you started Nth Dimensions? You know, you, you, we just talked about, you know, you going to, you know, through med school, you know, working to match at Howard. And I know a lot of things happened, but what, what can you kind of give me the story of why you started Nth Dimensions? Yes, no, absolutely. So once again, just giving it my all um, throughout residency, that was, you know, pledging a fraternity pledging ortho yeah. the day before work duty hour restrictions. Mm. So we still had penalty call and penalty lectures. And yeah. I got my share of penalty lectures back in the day. And once again, that was like going up in front of the firing squad. And yep. um, as a, a, a chief resident, um, one day I experienced some right shoulder pain. I had just done a, a total hip replacement. So thought it might've been some kickback from, you know, the saw or something. I was like, mm -hmm. Maybe it's just too much. Next week, it was left hip pain. Mm. But I just run the stairs, you know, still working out. <clears throat> Maybe I'd done too much. And um, within a short period of time, just a myriad of these uh, migrating arthralgias and just crazy musculoskeletal symptoms. It was really weird. Um, I didn't know what was happening. And one of my classmates said, listen, something's not right. We're going to emergency room. Long story short, after seeing specialist after specialist, I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis as a chief. Mm. Um, this was right after I had matched in, at the Rob, um, uh, the Robert Carroll Hand Fellowship at Columbia. Wow. So I got in this fellowship, diagnosed mm -hmm. with RA, and my rheumatologist said that it was the uh, most aggressive and most intense case of RA he had ever seen. Wow. Um, so um, even after... Back then, we didn't have any disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs, um, so I was getting kind of this chemotherapy-grade medication intravenously once mm -hmm. a week, and it was um, it shut me down. It was it was very very strong, very potent, um, and um, I had to forfeit my fellowship because I was too yeah. sick, and he didn't think we would get it under control, which we didn't mm -hmm. within a year or so of me finishing. So. Um, I finished residency, passed my boards, <clears throat> joined Dr. Grant in practice. And I said, well, you know, I want to, I want, if, if nothing else to show other students like me that orthopedics is an option. So I called Dr. Wineski, our uh, well, yeah. yep, professor back at Morehouse School of Medicine. And I said, Dr. Wineski, I want to come back with a, a, a tray of lab instruments to show the class, while, you all, while you're doing the limb dissections, some clinical applications for why they need to understand the anatomy so, so well. And he was like, sure, Bonnie, come on down. So him and Dr. Paulson were there. They were giddy to mm -hmm. have me there. <laughs> and um, just took the class through a very small sawbones workshop at that point. This was 2002. Yeah. And um, within a very short period of time, I was coming back annually. Uh, with the Zimmer rep and um, then um, Zimmer headquarters heard about it and said, well, we want to support your efforts formally, but we need you to organize. And um, I said, organize it. We need you to become a, a, a nonprofit so we can donate to your efforts. So Nth Dimensions was born. I was having a conversation with my dad, the physicist about a name we were talking about um, Einstein's theory of relativity and the different dimensions he described. I was like, dimensions, ooh, that's a good, that <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I like that word. I yeah. said, but I wanted to have some infinite, you know, capacity to it, like, you know, some mathematical, uh, a mathematical reference. And so we thought about n, the variable n, which means, you know, an infinite number. And so we came up with nth dimensions ultimately translating into the fact that all of us have an infinite number of dimensions to who we are to our lives and um, the nonprofit was officially born in 05, which is our first year where we offered the Nth Dimension Summer Internship Program. And here we are in 2021. Yeah. The summer Internship Program has expanded to four phases of uh, longitudinal support. 
for students starting um, way back in high school now. We do clinical um, correlations lectures and bioskills workshops for students at all levels, introducing people to orthopedics, but also, like you said, now radiology, dermatology, ophthalmology. Yeah. And it's exciting because there are 125 of you guys who actually matched in ortho over the years. That's a lot, right? I mean, that's a you ton. Know, that is that is a ton of people, and you know, firsthand being a part of the program again, I can't say enough thanks or appreciation for you know you having to drive and and starting this and wanting to give back and you know just watching it throughout the years. It's been dang, it's been that long since I I did it in twenty fifteen, so it's been really wow, six, seven, seven, six years. Wow, that's a I didn't think it was that long ago, but yeah, I did it, I guess, six years ago and seeing it grow and seeing, you know, the match rate is always consistently high um, for orthopedics. And now it's grown to the other other specialties. It's like you said, radiology, derm, optho. Did you, when you first started, did you think, did you envision this, what it becoming or did this just become throughout the years or what, you know, what, what do you think? Literally, uh, this was me following my passion and really the role modeling of my parents who were always givers. They were always in the community um, supporting um, young people who didn't have parents. My dad supported the elderly. So we grew up with this service mindset and giving back had to be a part of the work we did and even as children. So I just wanted to, I just wanted to expose people to the root and the process and to share the benefit of you know my my knowledge and experience. So when I when I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis, I could only end up practicing operating as a surgeon for three years, saw patients non-operatively for another two years. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I, I kind of became like Bo Jackson, you know, Bo Jackson can't watch football. He's yeah. like, I gotta be on the field. I gotta do it, yeah. I, you know, I can't even watch because it's painful, right? And that's what it became for me. Non-operative ortho. I mean, it just, for me, it just doesn't, doesn't make sense. Like, that's not, that's not what we wanted to do. Like, yeah, I decided to retire. I said, I'm too close. I'm too proximate to it for it not to be painful. But that was, you know, I got some therapy and had to process and grieve the loss, right? Mm -hmm. Of that career that I had worked really, really hard to, um, matriculate through um but i knew it wasn't in vain because i was like you never do that much hard work for it just to be for nothing to be for Mm -hmm. nothing like i knew that i said god wants me to do something with this so it was really just starting with that one tray and then going back and seeing the kids excitement you guys at morehouse and then you know we did the same thing at some other institutions really when we started the program in 05 um and this was in partnership with miss bruton verona bruton Mm-hmm. Um, who had visualized how we could join forces with orthopedic surgeons across the country and have you guys go and work with them for eight weeks during your first during um, the summer between your first and second year in orthopedics to, in, in medical school to get exposure to orthopedics. Right. It was um, we just wanted to have a program one year, and then the next year I said, okay, well we'll see what happens. Okay, then we had it the second year. And then we had it the third year. So we weren't really sure Still going. if it was going to work. So once again, it's just putting one foot in front of the other. Do what's in front of you right now. Do it very well. Yeah. And then the next step will reveal itself. Sometimes we want to see the whole path. That's that's almost never going to happen. Other than you setting a path to finish, you know, your known, reach your known milestones finishing medical school, finishing residency training. But after that, you have to learn to kind of be uh, comfortable with the uncomfortable place of maybe not knowing what every step will look like. And um, once again, doing your best where you are will help you in that process. And and you mentioned, you know, wanting to, you know, share your expertise and your knowledge. And I think that was a a perfect point to kind of transition into, you know, now, you you know, you're a published author now amongst all the other things that you that you do. And and what's kind of the the story behind why you wrote or how you kind of came up with this, this Power Moves book, you know, we're talking about, uh, you know, contracts, negotiations and physicians. So can you kind of tell me a little bit about that? 
all of this plays into, into the same life story. So coming out of residency, not having a clue about what I was going to do with myself, um, especially because I had to go into practice a year early, having foregone the fellowship. I joined Dr. Grant in private practice. And he said, well, you know, so he calls me East Point. You know, I'm from East Point, Georgia. He still calls, he calls me East Point. <laughs> still calls me East Point to this day. East Point, well, you can run the practice. And I'm like, okay, well, I just passed my orthopedic surgery boards. I should figure out, I should be able to figure this out, how to run the business. I didn't recognize a practice was a business at that point. Mm -hmm. So immediately I was thrown into making these financial, corporate, contractual, HR decisions right out of residency. And I, I was taken aback, of course, and that was extremely stressful, probably helped to accelerate my RA, honestly. <clears throat> but I took notes on everything that I thought we should have been taught in residency or medical school that no one had taught us. Like, how come no one ever talked to us about the next steps following training? Yeah. And after, um, after um, taking a bunch of notes and partnering with um, a business partner, Dr. Um, Karina, who's a practicing orthopedic surgeon with a big practice, we built a curriculum. And that's what we had launched at Beyond the Exam Room because I recognized that, okay, we, we could help students get from medical school to residency, but what about transitioning from residency to practice? What was in place? And as I started combing the literature and combing our association support for transitioning into practice, there just wasn't that much there. And what, we soon, what I soon recognized was that after um, our residents um, completed training, everybody would then come back to me and say, well, what's next, Dr. Mason? And how do I review this contract? What do I need to know? And I reckon I, I started seeing a pattern that I was um, counseling and advising people on their contracts, but we had to start from, there had to be a process involved in that advising as well. And after a few years, I started noticing a pattern that I was saying the same things over time, started taking some notes, built an online course, and started doing some formal coaching way down the road, maybe five or six years ago, um, of even practicing physicians who also had already made some initial bad contract decisions. And they were coming back to me to renegotiate new contracts. Yeah. Well, after the years of coaching, kind of saying the same things over and over again, I said, well, let me consolidate everything first into the online courses that um, are still at beyondtheexamroom.com. But then I said, let me just put it in a book because this way people could read the information before they came to my coaching sessions and we would be able to move through the material quicker. Um, come up with a customized negotiation strategy for each one of the people that came to talk and people were winning, Dr. Cole. Yeah. They were winning at their negotiations. So what I decided and what I was able to observe was this is just another arena where we needed the information and the tools. But once we had them, we could be successful. I mean, and once we learn something as docs, are you kidding me? Then we just take off, right? Yeah. Then, I mean... When I say these folks have been negotiating some monster contracts and monster flexibility into the way that they work and live, which is the ultimate goal, because I believe in work-life integration, none of this work-life balance bull. Mm. I've never seen work-life work and life balance each other. It's usually yeah. skewed in one way or the other. If you can integrate the two and become flexible and adaptable to that concept, then things are less stressful, right? Yeah. Because if you're trying to balance work and life, that's a tug of war. It's always pitting one against the other. But what if it's just a flow? What if, okay, well, right now I'm in residency, so things are going to skew a little bit more towards work and I have to let the people in my life know that I'm going to be less available and I might need a little bit more support, but then that'll give. And then I'll be able to concentrate on life a little bit more um, in a different way. And, and I can verbalize that and get what I need in terms of uh, making that work as well. So if, if you look at it as a flow that's nimble and then you can adapt to that and get the people in your life to buy on to that, life gets a little bit more, um, a little bit easier, a little bit easier. It's not always a, a war, right? Yeah. We, we need fewer battles, not more. So I don't, 
I, and I talk about that in the book. I don't, I don't subscribe to the, um, maybe it's ascribe to the work-life balance. <laughs> I'm a work-life integration person. And, and, and we'll probably get into a little bit more a little bit later. But I know you just mentioned some of the, you know, some of the, you know, your clients or, you know, the doctors you were working with making some big moves. What are, what's an example of just one of those moves that they made, you know, with their contracts or negotiations or whatever it may be? Um, I mean, I've had docs come back and negotiate for, oh, let's give some real examples. I had one doc who was negotiating a new contract, newly married, going into practice, read her contract. I said, oh, you know, beautiful wedding. Um, don't you all want to have kids? I believe you said that. She said, oh, absolutely. I said, well, there's no maternity leave in your contract. She was like, wait, what? Yeah. So I said, well, you know, you're going to need to approach them if you want to have that protected time. She comes back and she says, doc, I did it. I was like, you did what? She said, I negotiated for like 12 weeks of, of maternity oh, wow. leave. And I was like, Dang. what? <laughs> That's wild. Yeah. And she was like, Yes. I was like, how did you, how did you get that much? And she said, well, these were guy surgeons I was negotiating with and they didn't know what standard. They had no idea. Was, so, so I asked for it. <laughs> I said, of course. <laughs> and I got it because you always ask for more than what you want. So you, you go in high, they're going to come in low and what you want to do is ultimately meet in the middle. So she went in high. They didn't know it was high. So they said, yes. They said, so yep. She, she, she asked. She absolutely won. Three months. That's, that's a quarter yeah. of the year. That's that's great. That's absolutely. awesome. That's a big win. That was a big win. And what was even a bigger win was that within three months of her starting her practice, she was pregnant. Mm. So it was immediately applicable. Wow. And it was important that she negotiated and that we all negotiate for those things before we sign. And, and speaking have, about that. Yeah, you're not going to have that much as much leverage. Um, not nearly as much after you sign. So you want to negotiate for everything that is negotiable and that you want ahead of time. You're not going to, you're not going to have as much leverage once you start working. And and in your book, you mentioned, you know, your wants and needs, and you mentioned it numerous times throughout your book. And I think it is very important uh, to understand this. So can you, for those listening, you know, we have a lot of residents, some fellows, some are even med students that listen. Um, what are, what are these wants? What's, what is kind of this concept between our wants and needs? What are some examples and how should we approach creating this, this list per se? So this is what I call part of my SIP to success strategy. So in the book, there are uh, 67 power moves. Yes. Sipping to success is one of them. So SIP is the acronym for being strategic. I is for being intentional with your um, documentation and P is proactive with your communication. So you got to look at this, not from a place of reacting to a contract, you have to strategically and in advance think proactively about what you want, what you need out of this position, out of life that will help to make this a stable transition point for you. You can't do that if you're just reacting to what somebody gives you on a piece of paper, why? Because I think it's power move number one, contracts are written in favor of the author of the contract. So as a new physician, are you the author of that contract? No, oh, no. 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 I, as the employer, am the author. Thereby, I'm going to write everything into that contract that I want. And I'm going to make sure that my needs as the employer are being met with you by you as the employee. So one important thing to note is that this is not residency. These businesses and practices don't owe you anything. So you cannot assume or presume that what you need and want um, would be included in this contract that you're being offered. You cannot assume that this is business. We move in from residency training where there was some relative protection and value of who you are into business. So their job is to get the most for the least, the most out of you for the least amount of compensation. Okay. Yeah. That's what's written into that contract. Believe it. So for that reason, so we talked about power move number one, the contract is written in favor of the author of the contract always. That could be a car lease. I mean, you know, apartment lease. That could be a general principle. The matter of yeah. principle, business concept. And then also because of that, you never sign the first contract somebody gives you. Ever. 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 
ever. Just in case people are listening and didn't understand that ever. Don't ever sign the first contract somebody gives you because you haven't had time to review it, nor review your, nor integrate your needs. So, so doc, what you need in order to be successful in this position, such let's just take the example of the doc who knew she wanted to have children. Was maternity leave a need or 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 a want? For her, it'd be a need. For her, part of her yeah, part of her contract. So if this con, so if this employer thereby did not provide ample uh, parental leave for her because it was a need of hers. If she had gone ahead and signed that contract without having that basic need of hers met, would that situation work out well for her in the end? Nope. No. Not have. Exactly. So you have to outline what your needs are, right? So that you can be clear about these are the things. If I have these things, these are non-negotiables. But if I have these needs met, then I will be in a great position to, to perform maximally in the position I am contracting myself to, right? What are some of those, what are some of those needs, for example? So, so you think about your needs in terms of, especially for young people, that's a great question. And this is beyond compensation, right? So this is beyond what the monetary amount of the, the total compensation package that you will receive. But you do have to think about your family situation. So some people, um, I needed health benefits that were excellent, right? Mm. So for me, having rheumatoid arthritis at that point, being on medication, I needed a great health plan, right? So yeah. uh, going with a practice or even going into a, um, a, um, a situation where I might be a locums physician or a W9 physician where I'm a contractor that didn't come with health benefits, that violates an, a need that I have. So that wouldn't meet my full needs. So that might not be the best option for me. You see what I mean? Yeah. Maybe you need to move, right? And so maybe you need relocation expenses covered. Okay, let's see if that's being offered by this position. So you think about um, maybe you have a retirement plan, which all residents have because you're employed by the, your residency training hospitals. You have um, uh, well, you may have retirement monies that are being taken out. So a need of yours, because maybe you grew up in a family where, um, you know, you didn't, your family didn't have savings for retirement. So maybe a need of yours personally is to have a great retirement plan. So you look at their benefits package to see if there's a retirement plan in place, how aggressively they're investing in their re retirement portfolio and what those options look like for you. You know, maybe that's a need of yours because you, you know, you want to have security in retirement, um, even starting out as a new physician, but you also have an interest in that part of, you know, of your, of your life. Those things may not sound, um, may, maybe call is an issue, right? Maybe because you may, maybe you're a single parent and you can't take overnight call. Is that a need? Is that a is that a need that has to be met? Yes, because for you, if you then had to take overnight call, then that's that becomes a problem if you get called in, right? Right. So then that's a deal breaker. So if you can't get your needs met, your core needs, that means you're starting out that job day one, um, in a place where the likelihood of you being successful there is very low. Um, and without those needs being met, you would be part of the 80% of physicians that change positions in their first two years. So the wants would be things like, oh, I'd like six weeks of vacation instead of four, for example. Exactly. That'd be exactly. Okay. Um, it might be, um, you know, I, I only want um, to work in, you know, two uh, locations versus three. Yeah. Right. It, it, so those are those are nice to haves but those are not deal breakers. If you can't get your needs met, which is why you're going to review two to three positions, just like we looked at two to three residents. I mean, we looked at more than that in terms of residency <laughs> yeah. programs, but also in medical school, you got to do the same thing when you're looking for positions. You don't want to hone in on one position because then you don't have anything to compare it to the terms of this contract 
and employment versus the terms of a second offer or a third offer, right? Because that way you can tell what the fair market is offering in terms of compensation, in terms of benefits, in terms of other things that you may uh, want, that would be nice. But all of the offers that you consider must take your needs into account. If you can't get what you need, then that's a deal breaker and you have to be willing to walk away. And that's what most physicians aren't willing to do. We, we become afraid because we've never been in the seat where we've had options. We've always been begging for a seat in med school. We've been begging for a match position, right? Yep. No, now we are the revenue generators in this whole healthcare scheme. Um, the 2020 Merritt and Hawkins study um, showed that on average, um, a practicing physician via inpatient and outpatient revenue generated um, for a hospital that that person is affiliated with amounts to about 2.3 million a year. Yeah, bringing a lot of money. So you're bringing in a lot of money to your practice and or that hospital. So we have to recognize we are in the seat where we can negotiate. Now, I'm not talking about being unreasonable, but I am talking about making sure at the very least your needs are met. And if those aren't met, then those are deal breakers. Then you move on to one of the other two or three options that you have. Think about it. Options are having options. You know, that's the key. If you only have one option, that's not an option. That's an obligation. Yeah. And I think like the hard at least what I'm thinking about, the hard part of that is like, you don't know what you don't know, right? So you don't know what are some of the needs that you should even consider, you know, asking or, or consider about when you're looking at a job. So that's why, you know, that's one of the harder things to, to try to figure out. Or do you know, do you have like a, a guide or, or a source that people can use to consider which things they should be looking at? So they yep. don't leave anything out. It's in that book. So I have a full appendix in the Power Moves book, a full appendix of potential needs and wants that people could ask for. Um, I don't have my book in front of me. Shame on me. Oh, I have it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's in, no, in the back it, and it, it's, yeah. there's a list of um, a series of needs and wants that different physicians had asked for in different um, from different career perspectives. I mean, are you going to have an MA, a dedicated MA? Um, how, how much OR time are you going to have if you're an orthopedic surgeon? What type of support are you going to have to make sure that um, you can get the work done that you need to get done? So there are any number of these clinical, right, um, support-based and personal things that you have to consider, which is why reading that book is important because I just poured everything in my head over counseling people since 2006 on this business and medicine side. It's all in there. Um, yes don't have to figure that out. But those are some of the critical things that tend to hem people up because we don't know what we don't know. That's very true. Once you talk through this, once you read about it, talk through it with some people who recently transitioned into practice as well, then you have to um, you know, be ready to enter that negotiation. Yeah. You, you can do so more confidently because you're informed and you'll have a strategy, which is the other thing I talk about having in this um, in this book. Negotiation, um, the negotiation process is a relationship building process. So it's not something you just randomly walk into. You got to have a plan. You got to have a strategy because you're trying to build a relationship with the people on the other side who are your potential employers. Yeah. So they need to know that you're about business. They need to know that you're organized and that you're informed that's going to tell them a lot about who you are and that you're willing to use your voice to ask for what you need, but you're willing to compromise or come to a win-win around the things that you want, your nice to haves. So it's all part of the strategy. Um, and that's not willy nilly. So I will cringe because people will tag me on Facebook when somebody's like, I'm going into a negotiation in an, in, uh, in an hour. Uh, what do I need to know? I'm like, I don't <laughs> should have thought about but about that before you know an hour before you should already know what you know and, and how you're gonna approach it and it has some uh some questions ready you know uh, i definitely want to touch on that soon or shortly if we have if we have time um but i before we you know i wanted to, to at least touch on this and i wanted to touch on kind of building our advisory team and who those people are 
and, and why you should have a team. Cause that's something I didn't even think about. And now I'm reading this one, man, I, I got to get a team. Like I, <laughs> I have to get a, my whole, a whole crew going. So can you kind of talk about why that's important? When should we be building this team and then the different team members so we can try to break them down one by one if we can. Well, what we're identifying with this whole contracts and negotiations process is there is a lot that we don't know, right? So from a business perspective, financial perspective, legal perspective, accounting perspective, wait a minute. But all of that's going to, all of those perspectives are going to be integrated into that contract. So we're going to need to surround ourselves with people who are experts and who are well-versed in those subjects to look at our contract through their particular lens. You want your accountant to review your contract for the tax liability that is being set up. That, how, how would we know how to determine the tax situation that's being presented by this particular contract? Yeah. We have no idea, right? And what about the retirement package? Are we well-versed? Some people are, but most of us are not well-versed on what um, this retirement package, the, the total value of the, of the retirement package, how does that feed into our total compensation um, value? You need somebody with that expertise who can quantify the numerous financial aspects that are incorporated into your contract. Legally, um, I... <laughs> I cringe, Doc, because I'll still sit on panels these days where some of the older physicians will tell younger physicians, you don't need an attorney. And I'm, mm. I'm, I'm, I just want to throw something across the Zoom. <laughs> throw it across the screen. Not sign a contract without having an attorney look at it. Why? Because attorneys are drawing up the contract. So who yeah. are you as a physician to think that you know everything that, a, that, a, that an attorney knows? That's like an attorney coming in and telling us that they know how to treat uh, this open fracture. And because it was only a puncture wound that it's not. <laughs> See, you're laughing because right. you know, you yeah. know. It sounds silly, yeah. It sounds silly, right? Yep. So, I mean, who are we to think that we understand this federal and state regulations that could end us up in some serious trouble that we know we, <laughs> you need to understand the legality of the contract that, that's being presented to you. Because sometimes the people writing the contracts don't even understand all of the legalities and you could be signing a contract that could end you up in legal trouble. Violation of Stark laws, you know, that's the self-referring laws that vary those on a federal level. Different states have um, regulations according to self-referrals um, as well. How do we know what's standard and customary in terms from a legal perspective and with laws changing so frequently? Why would we want to take that responsibility on? Pay someone to be responsible for making sure that your contract is legally fit to sign. Mm -hmm. You're going to pay someone to review your contract to make sure you understand the, the tax amount of taxes that you're going to end up paying in year one, year two. Plan that out. It's another strategic approach. Also from a financial perspective. And then also to, um, let's see, we said accounting, legal. Oh, and then just from a, an all out business perspective as well. So you want to have these team members, these team of advisory members review your contract so they can look at it through their lens and make sure this is like a second and third and fourth opinion that you are signing the best contract for you at the time. And you do not want to go into that. Um, you do not want to sign that contract from a naive perspective, but this is more, this is helping you to become informed. So this is like informed decision-making, having all these people take a look at your contract, giving you the pluses and minuses based on their expertise, that's helping you make it your best and next informed decision. Now, do you have them like, is this something like a, a group, like a group email that you may send out to everybody or do you send them out individually or how, how do you go about that? And then after that, a follow up would be, how do you find these people? Say, for example, me, such third year in residency, where do I go about looking for all these people? Exactly. Well, now's a great time to start. So you want to start you know, a year or two before you have to transition. 
because you're going to identify an intern, a, a health law attorney, and a, a financial advisor, ultimately an accountant. You want to also have a, a banker. These are people, uh, these are professionals that you are going to get referrals to from friends of yours, from other colleagues, people who've used these people before. You're going to interview three candidates for each one of these roles to see who is the best fit for you in each one of the roles. This is chapter three in the book you're referring to because you wanna make sure that you're building a team and you have people in place. So by the time those contracts start coming through, yes, you can send them a group email and say, hey everyone, I'd like to get your feedback and input on this contract that I'm considering for this position. Please, you know, please give me your perspective because number one, these are, individual advisors that you'll be building relationships with, but they should also they should also be willing to work with one another to help you create a strategy um, that works for you, your career and your life. So it's really not just about the contract, it's really about the longer term goal of having this strategic plan for achieving financial stability or for whatever it is you want to do with your life and your career, that you have a team that's in place um, to help you do that, I went to a. It's not it's not an original concept, but I I went to a you know a, concert, a conference a long time ago. And there was a vein surgeon. He was opening up his own set of vein clinics with his wife, um, who's also a doctor. And he said every six months he'd bring all of his advisors into the office. They sit around a boardroom, and they would all all of the advisors from each one of these roles would sit in and and weigh in on the str uh, strategic plan for the vein clinics. Well, you don't have to own your own practice for you to have that team of advisors helping you build out the strategy for your career and for your life. So you wanna give yourself enough time because interviewing three people for six different advisory roles is gonna take some time. You wanna have an accountability partner. Suppose you and uh, Jay Fitz decided you all were going to interview three people over the next three months um, as financial advisors and decide together, you can work together and say, okay, we like this person, we like this person, we like that, or we don't like that person. Um, and you can start narrowing down and filling in those team of advisory members now. Because even in chapter three, I give you the questions to ask, what roles they play in your life and uh, what their credentials should be and where you can find them as well. Yeah, and and what, it's looking at it now, like is I guess a technical question I have of it. Is it something that, me as a third year, third year resident, I should be paying them just to, for an interview or paying them to be around and like, what's a decent rate? Should I be expecting to come out of pocket like a, a grand or a couple hundred that will they be like, oh, we know you're a resident, you don't get anything now. We'll, we'll do it, I guess, for a discount right now. But when you're attending, you know, it's going to be some more money. Yeah, great question. You should not have to pay for a discovery call. So you're fact finding, you're interviewing. So no one should charge you for that initial time of, of um, interviewing them and seeing you know, if they are a good fit for you and you're checking their references and asking them for you know, referrals to people that they work with that might be willing to talk to you about you know, their service, right? So you, sh you shouldn't have to pay a financial advisor upfront. Now for their services, once you engage, there may be um, payments involved. If you want to pay for a financial strategy, like a 10 or 20 year strategy, you may have to pay for that. When you start investing with a financial advisor, you usually um, also should not have to pay upfront, but they get a commission on what they invest for you via different vehicles. Um, in terms of an accountant, you pay for a service. Um, that person understanding that you're transitioning into practice and that they can do your taxes, you'll retain them to do your taxes on an annual basis and also to create a tax strategy. That will be payment after the fact. Um, also with an attorney, but this is one of the things I get right now, uh, a lot of pushback from residents is, oh, I don't want, I don't have, you know, $2,000 for a, a, um, an attorney to review my contract. Well, let's think about that for a second. Um, let's just say $3,000 to make the, the numbers uh, pan out. Um, if you receive your first contract, and I call it in the book, your foundation contract, which is different from your pro um, productivity contract. So you, you mm. got to read that chapter in the book because you're going to- A lot of information. 
there's a lot of information. Yeah. There's some nuances in those first two contracts that you receive. In your foundation contract, let's say you receive um, a guaranteed salary of $300,000 for two years, okay? Mm-hmm. What is the total compensation for those two years? That's 600000 600000 Well, the attorney is charging $3,000 to review what amounts to a $600,000 contract. I'm, I'm telling you, I'm not asking, I'm telling you that it is worth 0.5% of the value of that contract to get that attorney to weigh in on over. that contract. Yeah. It is 0.5% of the total uh, uh, value of that contract that that attorney is charging you. Because if then something goes wrong, you have somebody else that you can refer to, refer back to and say, hey, the legalities of this were not what you said they were. And thereby, not only am I liable, the attorney is liable as well. Mm. So now you're deepening your bench because you have a go-to that you can refer to in the future. You have somebody that can help reference and answer questions for you in the future as well versus you thinking you got it made and you really have no idea what you signed. You always have someone that is on your side. You've got like a legal coach that you can go back to and ask questions who can guide you and who can give you some direction if, if in case something happens or goes wrong, which if you think about it, these contracts are 10 and 20 pages long. Any number of things could happen within those first two years that you would need to refer back to someone you've already retained. You've already got a relationship with this person and conceivably, this is a, tr- a member of your trusted team of advisors thinking about having to find an attorney while you're scrambling through a legal issue in the midst of practice. Yeah, that's that can be a headache. Give that you some is, stress. All that. That is that is stress that can be averted. So again, we're talking about being strategic, being proactive. Build these uh, team of advisory members into your world now while you have the time. Yes, you're busy now. You're stressed now, but there's nothing like that real life stress when you have a le- some legal action potentially facing you and you don't know who to turn to and you don't know who to, to, to begin asking for support. I want, I want people to avoid some of the landmines that I walked into and that so many other physicians have walked into by doing this footwork up front. Get, your, get, get a family member, get a, a trusted friend to help you identify some of these people sent in on the interviews with you so that you have two points of view when you're interviewing the advisors so that they can listen out for, you know, some of the things that um, I caution you about in the book. You know, yeah. don't go it alone because it, it, if it feels like a, a lot, it is. But that's why I'm saying get an accountability partner to help you map out this process and one quarter at a time, see if you can't interview some people and start building that team as soon as possible. That way, when you start looking for, for positions, you've already read the book, you've got your team of advisors and you are gonna be in much better positions than even your attendings. Your attendings didn't do all this. They didn't know to do all of this. And some right. of them might tell you otherwise, don't listen. Hmm. These are all gems just being dropped. I hope, I hope everybody's don't, listening. <laughs> don't, don't listen to them. Things have changed since they entered the work world, especially yeah. those older folks. Woo. Yeah. And, and one one more thing I wanted to uh, touch base on before we wrap up here in a couple of minutes is uh, negotiations. And there's a lot that we can go into it. So I don't want, I'm not going to dive too deeply, but I just wanted to quickly see if you could touch on something I thought interesting when I was reading this, but the the sandwich approach to uh, negotiations. What is that? And can you kind of explain or talk about a time when it was being used? Oh my goodness. So the sandwich approach is how you approach any critical conversation. So I, in the book, refer to negotiations as critical or crucial conversations because it's a conversation and it's, that means it's, it's bi-directional, it's back and forth. But we know how to have conversations and we know how to have critical ones. We do that every day with our patients. But you have to think about a way to to have the conversation that is more collegial, less confrontational. And you sandwich, um, you use the sandwich approach 
in order to create the smoothest conversation possible, even though something difficult may need to be discussed. So you sandwich by starting with something positive at the beginning of your critical conversation. So suppose um, in a negotiation, you um, have your list of items that you want to negotiate. You have to prioritize and order those negotiating points. So maybe the first thing I want to negotiate is um, the CME uh, uh, payments or CME costs that are covered. And the contract says, okay, well, I want $3,000. Um, we, we will offer $3,000. And maybe I, I know the national average might be $3,500. I'll say, well, I know that the national average for um, CME costs being paid for or supported by the practice is um, $3,500. Um, is $3,500. I see you have $3,000. Is there a way we could get to $3,500? And they'll say, you know what? Yeah, sure. No problem. So you start with an easy <laughs> yes, right? Yeah. And then you say, well, you know, I was looking at um, not just the, the compensation, because I think we're right at, uh, at fair market value for compensation, but because I am, um, because you're offering a claims made malpractice insurance policy, the tail policy you have written into the contract, you know, it states that I would have to take full responsibility on paying the tail policy for that claims made insurance um, to have my claims made insurance policy in place. Um, I do also know that, you know, I'm starting out, could we negotiate to have you pay the tail policy um, if I were to leave this practice, you know, for any reason in the first two years versus having me be responsible for that tail insurance policy, which is usually two and a half times your annual premium of malpractice mm. insurance. So is there yeah. a way that we could, you know, talk about that because it would really, you know, help to offset and, and alleviate some stress for me if I knew that tail policy would be covered by the practice because it's not my intention to leave. But if in fact I did, if you all could cover that, that would make things a lot easier for me. And they all say, well, you know, I might have to go back and talk about that, but we could at least consider it. And you say, okay, well, thank you. You know, thanks for, you know, let me know what you think, but that would be great if we could just make that one minor change, which is not minor, it's a big deal, but you sandwich it, you, you started out with something positive and easy, yes. This was the harder financial ask. And then right. you close with another easy yes. Oh, well, you know, I live in, um, I live in this area, my family's from this area, and this is, which is why I really wanna take this position. And I see that you have, you know, three weeks of paid time off, you know, in the, in the contract. And, you know, I, I, I really was hoping to um, get four weeks of paid time off. And I also recognize that, you know, there are other local area hospitals are offering four weeks of, P of PTO. Is there any way we could meet at the four weeks off uh, of PTO? And they'd be like, well, that's not as big as asking for a tail insurance policy. To be paid. <laughs> so yeah, I think, sure. yeah, yeah, I think yeah. we can do that. So you sandwiched it, right? You got the two easier yeses and then you had the, the, the crunchier, you know, maybe not so easy. Yes. In the middle, the, the mm. point of negotiation that might be the toughest to hammer out, but then you follow it up with another yes, because you start and you've ended on a good note. You started and ended in a way that says, I'm not being unreasonable, but these are just a couple of additional points that I wanted to talk about where you can see points of alignment and agreement, right? So that they can see that you, you are the type of person that wants this to be a win-win. And yeah, you have one ask that might be a little bit tougher, but you're still that person that is reasonable, negotiable, and adaptable. So that's the sandwich approach. Yeah, I think that's great. Now, I think that was great. And you can use that with uh, many of your conversations in life. Um, you know, I, I don't want to say with arguments, but you can use it with any, anything, you know, you can use that, that approach for uh, uh, in negotiations with, with anything. Really. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's, yeah. let's <laughs> if you go into that conversation without, uh, my, my husband calls it the stroke and poke, without <laughs> saying something nice up front, to let that person, he'll start out. He used it on me first, honey. Oh, he did? Yes, well, honey, you know, I'm only married to you. I just want uh, you to be happy. And I'm like, you're right. That's smart. <laughs> and he'll say what he needs to say and say, sweetheart, you know, I always love talking to you. We always wind up better on the back end. I'm like, we do. We do. 
Gotcha. <laughs> This is learned behavior. Oh, man. Well, Dr. Uh, Dr. Bison is amazing. I think this has been a, a great episode. I think we definitely covered a lot or at least got people's minds, you know, jogging and, and kind of considering, you know, maybe that this is a more important thing that you should definitely consider, you know, well up to 18, 24 months in advance, you know, when you're looking at any new position, getting out of residency training, starting a new, a new job. Um, great job on the book. Of course, you know, it's a great job. I'm just reading it now and uh, I will definitely be referring to this numerous times in the next you know, couple of years as I transition out of residency and into a fellowship and into a practice of some sort. Um, now, at the end of our podcast, we always give our guests a way for our listeners to follow you. If you like, if you have some social media that you would like them to follow you on or any websites or any places where people can learn some more about you. Feel free if you want to go ahead and, and let the people know. Absolutely. And um, thanks again so much for uh, having me on the podcast. Um, I'm, I haven't been as active on the gram as I had been in the past, but I'm at mm-hmm. Dr. Bonnie Mason on the gram. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn, Dr. Bonnie Simpson Mason. And uh, the website is beyondtheexamroom.com for these business-related contracts and negotiations related items. And if you are interested in Nth Dimensions, that is at nthdimensions.org. Great. And also the name of the book, which is on Amazon, five stars, is called Power Moves, The Doctor's Ultimate Guide to Contracts and Negotiations, of course, written by Dr. Bonnie Simpson Mason. Uh, Great read. And again, Dr. Mason, we really appreciate you being on the podcast. For those listening, please uh, don't forget to go and leave a review in iTunes or Google or however you listen to this. And uh, until next time, we hope you enjoyed this episode.